and welcome to How to Deal When the Shit Gets Real podcast. I'm Rietta. And I'm Connie. And today we are here with the wonderful Ashley Buggy, right? Did I do that too much? You got it. <laughs> okay, good. Would you like to say a few words to our listeners about yourself? Sure. Well, thanks guys for having me. First of all, I'm Ashley Buggy. I am uh, here in the Pacific Northwest and I am a, an award-winning author. I'm a military widow as of a few years ago. I'm a mom. I'm a public speaker. I'm a grad school student now. Uh, I'm a polar explorer and I uh, am also a ukulele student, we'll call it. <laughs> <laughs> via YouTube at this point. <laughs> I love it. I do. I do that too. I'm learning on YouTube as well. Oh God. What's the guy's name? The British guy. I love him. That's who I'm using. It's, it's a fun little side thing. So I love yeah. that you're doing that. It's so fun. It's a lot of work and I get, we'll say talked to by my kids often like, oh, mom, can you put that thing away? But it's so fun. I love it. <laughs> From the, the videos I've seen though, you look pretty good. So I don't know what they're complaining about. <laughs> Well, I only post the ones where I actually sound okay. They have to listen to all the stuff where I don't sound okay. <laughs> That's their job. It's fine. You're yeah. not, you're only here to entertain me, child. I'm entertaining you. Deal with it. <laughs> well, and kids are the most, like, you know, they have no filter. So there's no, you're, you get the most real answers from them. Yes. If you want an honest answer, you ask a five-year-old for sure. I love that you're a writer. I think that's one of the reasons I found you on Instagram is because I'm a writer as well. And I saw what you wrote about and I thought that was amazing. So what inspired, motivated, influenced you, however you want to word it, into writing your story? Yeah. So uh, a little backstory, I guess, before I became a writer, you know, a lot of people know they want to be a writer or they have these like childhood dreams of publishing a book or writing or going to school for English or for writing or whatever it is. And I, I had none of that. I was an EMT. I was a banker. I taught culture classes in a prison at one point. I had a variety of experiences. And then uh, I met my husband. His name's Brian. Uh, we dated when we were 20 years old. Long story short, he was ready to get married and settle down at 20. I was not. So we split up and we went our separate ways almost 10 years later, we came back together and got back together. And in a single phone call, we got back together. And he was the same person I knew in my 20s. But individually, we had traveled the world, we had both started careers, his was in the Navy, and we had just led these really cool, independent lives. And then we came back together and lived this incredibly beautiful life together, uh, full of adventure and travel, we brought kids into the mix, uh, a rescue dog into the mix, uh, we we moved from Gig Harbor to Hawaii. He sailed our boat from Gig Harbor to Hawaii in a crazy, unprecedented military move via sailboat across an ocean. We just lived this really cool life together. And then uh, unfortunately on May 20th, 2018, he passed away in a scuba diving accident while we were stationed in Hawaii. And shortly after that, I was, I was six months pregnant with our third child when he passed away and we had a one and a three-year-old at home. And shortly after that, in the mix of all these just raw emotions that I wasn't ready to deal with, that I didn't know how to teach my kids how to deal with, I just start, started writing. Um, I just knew I had all of this stuff inside of me and I had no way to process it 
or rationalize it or think through it. And I, I needed to capture it and write it down. So I just started writing about how sad I was and how I didn't think that I was going to get through this. And all of these just very, very unfiltered feelings. And I published them because I felt like if other people could read it, then they would see how hurt I was and they would reach out and help me. (laughs) Um, And I kept doing that. And as I kept doing it, I did get a lot of support and people reaching out, not just wanting to help with the emotions that I was dealing with, but encouraging me for my way of writing and just how real and raw it was and how a lot of people don't write from that very authentic, transparent place inside of them. And it wasn't necessarily, like I said, I didn't grow up wanting to write. It wasn't, I was trying to write this way. It was, I had all of this feeling inside of me and it was the only way that I could think of getting it out of me. And I knew if I wrote it down, then it was captured in time and I could come back to it if I needed to feel that way again. But it also gave me this release of okay, I've captured that feeling. Now I can take a step forward and try to move on to the next feeling. And so I did that. And then, you know, throughout probably five or six months of doing that, I had my baby, I moved off the island, uh, a lot of different things kind of transpired. And somebody came at me and said, you need to write a book. You need to capture some of this stuff and it needs to become a book and then it needs to become a movie. And here I am like, you know, barely able to get out of the bed. I have a a newborn baby, a one and a three year, well, they're two and four at that point. I'm in no place to to write a book, but I am in a place to capture my feelings. And so I, I got in touch with an incredible editor and she said, just write, you write, I'll take care of the making it into a book part. And uh, that's what happened. And so, you know, it took almost two years of, start to finish, but I captured all of these stories, memories, recollections, and then turned it into this book called Always Coming Back Home, which was published last September. I love it. Yeah. And it's a wonderful book. I read it in like a day. It was wonderful. And (laughs) I love that you put his journal at the end of it because I can't personally imagine sailing from Washington to Hawaii. Like that just seems crazy to me. Yeah. So to read that was like being on the trip with him. Yeah. And he wrote it. That was his, his literally his journal he kept while sailing across the ocean. And it just talks, he was kind of that way of writing as well. He just very raw and vulnerable, but he went to school for English. So he had a more elo- eloquent way of writing, just very interesting to read. And I I think it just captures the essence of life and taking chances and taking risks and seeing the value in there being risk, but that the reward is probably going to be greater than the risk. And obviously that's not always true as he passed away just 10 months after that trip. But yeah, seeing, seeing his words and his feelings in a life-changing experience, um, it needed to go in the book. It was the whole whole essence of the book is, is taking chances and following your heart. Yeah. When he talked about like how deep the ocean was at one point, I was like, Oh my, Oh my goodness. Yeah. (laughs) Do you read that book or like his journals to your kids? No, no. 
so I'm very, very real with my kids. They know all about death and dying. They know about grief. We have very real conversations using very real terms. I, I have never left any question of if data is still out there or what happened or questions like, well, can data meet us in Hawaii? Can he meet us back at the Brown house? Can we FaceTime him? Things like that. I've, I've made sure that they understand the answer is no, that he's dead. That's final, but that we have places to go to think about him and to mourn him. But the stories in the book are certainly written for them. I mean, in all honesty, this book was besides my own cathartic way of, of, dealing with this grief, it was really my gift to them because they'll never know, they'll never know him. They, they were one in three when he died and I was pregnant with my youngest. So they won't know these stories. I know as time goes on, stories and memories change and distort. And I wanted to capture them as I remembered them as soon as I possibly could so that when they're older and more comfortable reading about like, you know, our love story and then their dad actually dying and my time in the hospital, like saying my final goodbyes that they would have, you know, a tangible representation of their dad and I and, and our love and uh, what brought them here. But they're, they're not, they're not, not old enough. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're little still. Yeah. So is book two going to play off of that or are you not, is it a totally a secret, but I know you're in the midst of writing a second one. <laughs> yeah. So I actually just finished writing book two and I just got Yay! it back from my editor today. So it's fully edited. It's done. How uh, exciting. Yeah. Really, really exciting. I, um, I need to read through the, the edits tomorrow and then we'll start this whole process of publishing soon. But yeah, uh, book two starts, the book one is basically our love story, start to finish, meeting, falling in love, time apart, coming back together, the life that we live together, traveling the world, sailing, scuba diving, all of these things, um, and then leads up to and includes his dying. Book two starts the day he dies and goes through like the organ donation process and then meeting, or not meeting, but uh, becoming friends with the recipient of one of his uh, organs, some of his tissue. Wow. And it goes through me being suicidal while pregnant. It goes through my whole grief journey, moving off the island, settling back here in the Northwest. And then it leads up to and includes this two month trip through Europe that I took all three of my kids on to try to find some sort of I don't know, semblance of peace, really like world travel had always been a part of our family. And that was something during that first year that really shook me was I'm not me anymore without this, this part of my life, without Brian, without my partner, I had zero confidence that I could do anything, which I knew was silly because I traveled the world before he and I were together. And I traveled the world while he was on deployments with my kids, but it was just such a, a mental hurdle to get through. And so I knew to work through some of the grief that travel needed to be a part of that with my kids. And so I write through traveling through eight countries of Europe with not even one year old, a three-year-old and a five-year-old <laughs> for two months. That's impressive all in yeah. of itself. <laughs> yep. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Actually, could, could you tell us like a little bit about that trip? Cause that sounds wild. Like yeah. you're in the middle of grief, you're bringing your kids along. It seems like a lot. It was, but it was exactly what I needed it to be. So what I really needed was 
something to occupy my, my focus and my energy and my thoughts. And I knew planning a trip like that would force me to like put my thoughts somewhere positive and give me something to look forward to. And so I spent months planning this trip. We ended up going to uh, the Netherlands, Norway, Poland, Switzerland, Greece, Malta, Ireland, and Iceland. And this was actually my third trip back to Iceland. The kids had been once before. Norway was someone that somewhere that Brian had really loved. So it was really important. We went there. We went to Auschwitz in Poland to just feel other people's grief and recognize as sad as we are, there are other people who are sad and who have lived through tragedy in their own families before. We went sailing in the Mediterranean and Malta. We, we, we did everything and we all, it was one backpack. It was me and, and two of my friends as the adults. And then the three kids, three car seats, three backpacks. Addie took her first steps in Switzerland. Oh my gosh. She celebrated her first birthday in Greece. Uh, Izzy's first or fifth birthday in Switzerland. It was, it was wild, but it was, it was amazing. It was on like my sister flew over in medicine, Switzerland for a few days. We met a friend, a friend, one of Brian's dive team members was also in Switzerland in a different part. And we met up with him and took the kids to, um, it's called the top of Europe. It's like this glacier uh, in the top of Europe, the highest train station and met one of Brian's dive team members from Hawaii in this random town in Switzerland. So just so many things happened that were just so heartwarming and beautiful. And we really came together as a family on this journey. And it was, it was amazing. It sounds incredible. Yeah. I'm having travel envy right now. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) What is one moment that you're the most proud of? Ooh, um, there's a lot. There's a lot that I look back on now and I, I can't imagine that I was able to get through some of it. I, okay. So this was probably like the big, the big one. Brian and I had learned to scuba dive together. This was like a part of our relationship. We both loved scuba diving. We had traveled the world and scuba dived together all around. This was like such a fun, a fun thing and a, and a fun part of our relationship. And when we moved to Hawaii, it was like even more incredible because now we got to have a giant playground as our backyard and we got to dive whenever we wanted. And then I got pregnant, so I couldn't dive. But Brian was in this, this it's called a rebreather, rebreather class. It's like a specialty piece of diving equipment. And when he died uh, on the rebreather in this class, I did not think that I would ever dive again. I was like, I can't dive. Like I can't let my kid's story be my dad died while diving. And now my mom died while diving. And I knew the only way that I could prevent that from happening is to never dive. And that was crushing diving had been such a part of my life and my life with my husband, the thought of not diving was almost as bad as the thought of myself dying while diving as well. It's just a part of your, of you, but I had it in in me that I wouldn't ever dive again. And then as we got close to the one year anniversary, this company called uh, living reef Memorial donated a living reef to my family. And that is Basically, I I gave them some of my husband's cremains and they mix them with cement and some organic material and they make a reef. And then I had that reef flown to Hawaii 
And I was going to have his dive team who flew in from all around the world uh, to be back in Hawaii for the one year anniversary. I was going to have them dive the reef and put it on the bottom of the ocean while I watched from our sailboat that Brian had sailed over. And a few days before I was at sitting in my house and I was just thinking like, this is going to be terrible watching his dive team dive with this reef and me not seeing it and me not knowing where it's at on the bottom of the ocean, me not getting to touch it or feel it or be a part of this. And I just thought, I think the, re- I think I would regret that. And I think the regret would far outweigh the being scared of diving and getting back in the water and something potentially happening to me. And so I called my friend Eric in Hawaii and, and I said, I think I need to do the dive. <laughs> and he said, what? And I said, I, I think I need to do it. I know that place is like, you know, a new feeling to, to what is going to happen. And if anyone wants to bail, I totally understand. Like that's a huge emotional element to this dive, but I can't not be there. I know if it were me, Brian would be there to place the reef. Like that's, that's the right thing to do. And he said, okay, let's do it. And so a year after he died, after he took his last breath here in, in Hawaii, I donned on my, my uh, scuba diving gear and I jumped in the water and I placed his reef and I dove for the first time. And so that's like something that I just think back on all the time. And I'm like, that took a lot of, of guts. Uh, guts. Yeah. Yeah, yeah <laughs> uh, absolutely. It's crazy to think about the emotion of that moment and everything that I was feeling. And not only that, but the physical remains of my husband to have my hands on them and place them in a place that was so important where he took his last breath. And now I have a place that I can go back to as often as I want and see him and think about him. And if my kids ever want to learn to dive, they can go visit their dad in this sacred place to us. It's just really special. And something gold was the name of your boat, right? Yeah. Stay gold. Stay gold. Dang it. I was close. (laughs) Do you still, do you still have stay gold? No. So crazy right before Brian passed away. (laughs) So he sailed, sailed her over to Hawaii. She was like a member of our family, but after living there for a few months, we, we were really into diving and we said, you know, we're not really sailing a ton. What if we sold her and we bought a dive boat instead And so that became the plan. And then literally weeks before he passed away, I'm talking maybe two weeks before he passed away, we sold her to this guy, our age, who was moving to Hawaii and he bought her and then moved to Hawaii. And thankfully I became friends with him um, and I've stayed in touch with him. And so he's offered and he offered up the one year anniversary to take my family and my friends out on her. And so yeah, they all got to go out and stay gold and watch me and the dive team place this living reef memorial from stay gold, which was just incredible. It's very special. That's awesome. That is. is he still here in Hawaii? Is the boat still here? Yeah. I'm going to have to keep a lookout for yeah, him. Yeah. Look like, for a yellow <laughs> sailboat with yellow sails. I mean, she's out there. I'm going to have to keep an and eye the out. The name is very appropriate then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry, if you read, if up. you read the book, you'll, uh, you'll get the whole like down low on the, on the stable. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Since Sorry. we're talking about Oahu, what was one of your and Brian's favorite place here? The Waikiki yard house. <laughs> nice. <laughs> That's accurate. After every dive, we would go to the Waikiki yard house and get hot and spicy edamame. Yum. 
a special place. Yeah. I'll have to put that on my list. Yeah. Thank you when we go. Yeah. Okay. We also like the, um, the Makapu. Well, this is special for the kids and I, the Makapu tide pools, uh, mm-hmm. special to us as a family, uh, E beach is really nice. We've dived there a good, good handful of times, but yeah. My, my husband was just talking about electric beach like yeah. last night. He's like, we need to go. We haven't gone yet. I'm like, I'm whenever you want to go. It's go. awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Rihanna, you're just waiting for me to come. That's, that's what it is. <laughs> It could be it. I don't know. I've never dived before. So that would be something I would have to learn how to do. We would just snorkel, but yeah, yeah. it's if always something been out there. Just be careful. There's a, a output. There's like a tunnel that you yeah. snorkel along, but you get to the end and the output will literally push you out. So just be very careful. Wow. Uh, stay to the, if you're looking out at the ocean, stay to the right and you should be okay, but just be mindful. It's as you get to the end, you'll see the water churning and, and oh, wow. unless you're a very, very strong st- swimmer, try to stay away from that. Yeah. I remember hearing that, that, uh, cause that's where like the electrical station and why the water is so warm and all that is that it goes out there. Yeah. So that's good to know. Stay to the yeah. right. I got it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so what's one of your favorite memories of Brian that you tell your children? It's probably a hard one. Cause I'm sure you probably have a ton. <laughs> so many. We, we talk about the sailing trip a lot because I had a film made about, it's basically like a 10 minute documentary film about his trip over. We, we filmed a ton of footage or he filmed a ton of footage while he sailed the boat over with the intent of making a short film about it. And then after he passed away, I contacted the filmmaker who's a friend of ours and had him put a little thing together that we showed at his funeral. And Izzy remembers the boat and so Hudson, my, my son, often he'll say, can we watch the stay gold video, which is the video of data sailing across the ocean. So we talk about that one a lot. We talk about sailing. We talk about Brian and, and Izzy's um, like special date. He used to take her ice skating all the time. And she remembers, uh-huh. she remember, I don't know if she remembers the act of it, but she has a picture of him and her uh, in her room where they're ice skating. And so she remembers you know, like the feeling, I guess, of it. And she looks at the pictures and she remembers like she did these things with them, but she doesn't have any memories like of him or with him specifically. That's gotta be the hardest part that they were so young and they don't really have any like concrete memories of him. Yeah, it's it's devastating. (laughs) Is that what inspired you and your kids to make the children's book? The kids book was... When he passed away, I didn't know what, I didn't know how to talk to them. I don't know. Do I use these real words of death and organ donation and cremation and drowning? And how do you explain to a one and a three-year-old who have never heard the word death before Mm -hmm. what that even means and what that process looks like and why, you know, he drank too much water and he can't come home. So I started looking for books as the weeks went on. I started looking for books to give them or that I could read to talk that would teach me how to, to help them deal with it. And there was nothing out there that I found. It was all, you know, animals, depictions of, of adult animals or grown animals dying and they're in a lot of religious books, nothing that showed real kids going through real grief using real terms. And so about a year after, actually it was like a year and a half after he passed away, I was driving to a pumpkin patch with the kids and it just kind of came to me like, 
I had nothing, but these kids have a story now and they have a voice and they are able to say my dad died in a scuba diving accident and I miss him and I'm sad and I had to go to his funeral and there were no books out there with kids that were able to say that when my kids went through it. And so it just kind of came to me like, we have the ability to do this. There's no reason for us not to do it. Let's do it. And so, uh, yeah, I, I hired the military editor uh, and worked with her and together we created a book that now exists about real kids going through real grief and it's called a hooey ho until we meet again. And it's out there. I love it. Yeah. I like the title. It's great. Thanks. Yeah. It. And it's a great, I mean, that's one of the reasons that Connie and I started this podcast is like, we wanted to help people share stories that even if it helps one other person that might be going through the same thing, Mm-hmm. that that was part of our purpose. And that's, that's the same thing with your book. You wanted to give somebody else another re- a resource that they could have yeah. to get them through. Cause you can never really have enough resources. And then if there was none, yeah, it's the perfect reason. Exactly. How did you help your child children through the loss of their dad? I would say just being really having really direct conversations with them making sure they understand using kid gloves, but making sure they understand what happened and why it happened and what that means for us now. And then, you know, they still have like very sad days. Hudson's four, he'll be almost five in a month, which is mind blowing. He was one when Brian passed away, just about to turn two. So he still has days, you know, where he'll, he'll just be really sad. And and I know it's because he's been looking at pictures of Brian or he watched a video and he's sad because he misses his dad or he misses the idea of his dad. And so he'll come in here in my room and, and we'll talk about it and we'll watch home videos and we'll look at pictures and I'll share stories of just him and his dad and things that Brian did really special for, for Hudson. And so I try to make it, it known just how much he loved them. And then the individual memories that he created with them. So, you know, Addie won't have that, but she'll have the stories of Brian and I finding out we are pregnant with her and him going to the doctor's appointments with me and, you know, things like that. Now, I, those individual memories are, are probably really meaningful to them. Yeah. So that's great that you guys can talk about it and be so open about it. And yeah. I know you've, I know you've, we've, again, we've kind of talked about it, but haven't really hit on it like directly. How, how did you cope with just such a loss? I am still coping is the real answer. (laughs) I, I don't doubt it. There was so much going on in that moment, you know, at six months pregnant. And then as soon as he passed away, basically my, my body shut down. I had preeclampsia. I had uh, gestational hypertension. My kidneys shut down. My liver shut down. I just, I couldn't eat. I couldn't drink. I couldn't sleep. And I decided I didn't want to stay in Hawaii to have the baby because it it was too much to think about bringing her home to this house that we had lived in together. And so in the mix of now a high risk pregnancy, I was moving off the island and I was moving to Boise, Idaho, where I never wanted to go or live, but that's where his sister lived. And my two kids and my dog and I moved into her house with her husband and her two kids in a four bedroom house. And it was just so chaotic. There was just so much that people needed from me. I didn't have time 
to honestly work through any of it. I was just sad. I was just, I couldn't, I couldn't see, I couldn't do anything. I was making all these decisions. I planned a funeral. We celebrated Hudson's second birthday in there. I planned to move off the Island. I went to these doctor's appointments, facilitated his organ donation. I mean, all of that was in the, the span of two months. And then I, I ended up going into labor. They induced me five weeks early because my body couldn't, couldn't handle the pregnancy anymore. So until Addie was like a few months old, and then I decided to leave Boise and come here to Portland, <laughs> which was just something else to add as a distraction uh, until I got settled here was really when it kind of hit that this was real and that now I needed to, to work through it. So yeah, May will be three years and I, I'm still, I'm still working through it. Yeah. I can't imagine my husband's military too. So it's something that we fear, you know, you're yeah. always thinking about it when they're deploying or going and I can't even imagine like it actually happening. Yeah. You are a strong woman. Thank you. I mean, you don't have a choice. Your choices are to Mm -hmm. let it consume you, which is a valid choice. It was certainly, you know, a very tempting choice or to not let it consume you and you figure it out. And once I had Addie and I saw that it was really these three kids were reliant on me and me alone. And I have the ability to have them look back and either have this be as good of experience as possible for them, given the circumstances or to say my dad died. And then, you know, my mom basically died too. Like that's, I don't want that for them. So you really, that's my only choice is to, to fight and to figure it out. Yeah. So uh, what advice would you give our listeners? Cause you've, you've gone through a lot. So we love asking people, what advice would you give to, to anybody? Just, just any yeah. advice. I think, I think the best advice, the, my biggest learning curve through all of this and through really life as an adult in general is I've had to learn to ask for help. I've had to learn to admit when I wish that I was capable of doing it all myself, but understanding that I'm not. And through this whole process, these past three years, I'm still insanely independent. I still am basically on my own but I also recognize that everybody wants to help and it's very helpful to ask people for help that want to help. So like I was saying to you guys earlier, my best friend comes every Monday night and she takes my kids to soccer for an hour. She doesn't have to do that. It's fun for her, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) And it's nice for me because that gives me an hour break to do what I need to do to talk to you guys, to do laundry, to do whatever it is that needs to get done. But it wouldn't have happened if I wouldn't have asked or at least said, okay, yeah, let's do that. And it's a hard thing to do. You know, you're you're very prideful. You're very like, I got this. I don't need anyone's help. I can figure it out. But just learning when you need help and, and recognizing that people want to help when you're going through something, that's, that's been my biggest takeaway from all this. No, I definitely feel that I tried to ask for help more because I, I don't do it either. I don't know if it's a military spouse thing or just a woman thing or a mom thing or whatever it is, but try to do everything we can and you just can't, you can't always do it all. So I'm a big believer in like signs and signs from the universe or however you want to think of it. So do you believe in signs and do you get any from Brian or just any in general? No, I wish I did. 
I've had people say they've had dreams about him. I ha- I've had two dreams about him since he's passed away. The first one was so real. I heard his voice. I, I felt him next to me and I woke up so happy because it made me feel like everything else had been the dream and that I was back to real life and that, that it had just been a terrible nightmare. And I woke up so happy and then it clicked pretty quickly that that wasn't, it had just been a dream. And then it was just so heartbreaking all over again. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I don't, I don't believe in signs. I don't think that he's out there. I don't think that he's watching down on us. Unfortunately, you know, part of me wish, wish that I could believe that, but I'm, I'm also very realistic in the fact that that's just not reality for, for me, the way that I think, and that I don't think it'd be healthy for me to feel that way. Yeah. No, that's totally okay. That's why I like to ask because everybody's different and it's okay. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's nice to hear how other people think and process and feel and how they take away things. And I like that you're a realistic. There's no beating around the bush. Your kids will never ever question you. They'll always know that, you know, mom gave us the truth, even when it was the hardest truth she had to give. Yeah. I don't, there's one time throughout this whole, really in their whole lives that I can think of where I've said, we'll talk about it later, or we'll talk about it when you're older. That's the only thing that I've ever said to them. Izzy knows her dad was cremated. She knows, or they all know that he's been made into this living reef memorial, but she's asked, so is that a skeleton just out in the ocean? Cause you know, she knows he died in the waters, mm-hmm. but she can't quite make the connection between him dying. And, and she knows when you die, it's your skeleton is left with being cremated. And mm-hmm. I am not at a place where I can tell, walk her through how cremation works. Yeah. Uh, and so that's the only thing I've ever said to them is that we'll talk about it when you're older. But other than that, I have been very, very real with them. Like like I said, I don't want there to be any question, you know, data's up in the sky. Why can't he just come back down or data's in, in the ocean? Why can't he just come out or, you know, data's spirit is all around us. Well, okay. I want to see him, you know, that that's not how I think. (laughs) And I understand some people do, and it's very comforting to them. And that's amazing, but I don't want to confuse my kids at yeah. such a young age, if, if there's any chance that he's out there and why he's yeah. not with us. Yeah, yeah. And then they're only going to continue asking questions. Yeah. If, if you're saying that kind of thing, giving them those platitudes, they might be always asking those questions instead of they know. Yeah. Exactly. They know. And now they're asking for memories. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And cremate, I don't blame you. Cremation is not a, that's not an easy explanation at all. Yeah, I know. I don't, I don't even know how I would go about that either. <laughs> I know. Well, what's crazy. This was actually a really hard conversation. We just had one of Brian's organ donor recipients. Her name's Alyssa. I've become friends with her and she just got certified to scuba dive and she's going to meet me in Hawaii next month. And we're going to dive together for Brian's three-year anniversary. Oh, my heart. I know she was the recipient of Brian's Achilles tendon. Uh, It went to replace her ACL. And so Izzy knows 
<laughs> that Alyssa was Dada's organ donation recipient. And she knows that Alyssa has a physical part of Dada in her. And she's starting to kind of ask, but how did they get it? How did, how is Dada in Alyssa? How did they get it? Oh. And so we talk about surgery and we talk about, you know, mm-hmm. when you break your arm, they set your arm or sometimes, you know, you, you get animal parts or bionic parts. And so we're talking through some of that stuff. These are like crazy, crazy concepts that I know even adults sometimes struggle with, but it's really incredible because I've worked with my kids for the past three years using very real terms and words and scenarios. It's easy ish for them to place from one thing to the next and how, how that makes sense that this has turned to this. And now at at six years old, almost seven, she knows about organ donation and how this data, because he passed away, not on his own doing, has enabled Alyssa, this friend of ours that we're now going to meet, to go climb mountains and to raise her own three kids and how important things like organ donation are and how lucky we are because now we have a friend of Dada's that we get to talk to that has a physical part of Dada in her and, and things like that. It's just really, really amazing. It's amazing how life sometimes comes full circle like that. Yeah. And if you have time while you're here, I would love to meet you. Yeah. We'll be there for 10 days. I'm going to try to put together like a beach cleanup or something and just invite all of our friends in Hawaii. Cause there's never enough time while we're there, but of course I nice totally to get do, it. It'd be nice to do something. We try to, to do some sort of beach cleanup whenever we're out there. So if well, I'm there. If you do a beach okay. cleanup, I will be there. Awesome. <laughs> the only other question that I have anyway, Connie, I don't know if you'll have another one. I just kind of want to understand the rebreather more. I don't know if you can explain it better. I know when I was reading, like it gave, you gave a very good explanation, but as somebody who doesn't, I've never scuba dived. I just kind of want to understand more like what was with it, with the rebreather that what happened. Yeah. So the rebreather is, it's not like your, your recreational scuba diving equipment, which you strap your, your air to your back. You turn on your air, you put your regulator in your mouth and you're good to go simplifying a lot, but more or less, that's how recreational diving works. A rebreather uses a computer and a closed loop system. So you have typically an oxygen cylinder, maybe a helium cylinder and your air cylinder, which is, you know, nitrogen, oxygen mixed together, like your air, the air that we breathe. It works where you are breathing your air. And then as you release carbon monoxide, it goes through a scrubber and scrubs it all out and you go through this big loop and you're basically rebreathing your own air with it injecting oxygen or helium or whatever gas you need to breathe based on what depth you're at in the ocean. Before you get in the water, you do a five minute pre-breathe to make sure all of your O2 sensors are working on your machine, that your computer is working, that it's checking, it's monitoring the levels of it because hypoxia happens so quickly out there. And because you're rebreathing your own gases you don't know if you don't have oxygen coming into your system. So potentially, which is what happened in Brian's case, he forgot to turn the actual oxygen tank on itself. He turned it on, did his pre-breathe, turned it off for the boat ride out and forgot to turn it back on. So he got in the water, he's breathing all of these air through his loop. And as he's 
breathing the air through the loop, it's taking the oxygen out as he's breathing it, scrubbing it, but there's no oxygen coming in because the oxygen cylinder is turned off. So about five to six minutes of doing that, he used up all of the oxygen that was in his loop, basically fell asleep. He became hypoxic. There's no signs whatsoever. Passed out in the water. Nobody in his class, including his instructor was watching and he just sank. And then by the time they saw him and got to him, he was on the floor of the ocean and he was gone. Oh my goodness. Yeah. So I actually worked with a British filmmaker, well, a British subject matter expert who studies human factors in diving, and then a Dutch filmmaker. And on the two-year anniversary or close to it, we all flew to Hawaii with his dive team. And we filmed this documentary called If Only. And if you look up, it's on Vimeo or YouTube or thehumandiver.com. It's a documentary about Brian's diving accident and exactly what happened, all the things that led up to the accident, all of the training, all of the people, everything involved, and then talks about ways that we can try to prevent these accidents from happening in the future. Okay. I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah. But thank you. That was a very helpful explanation. (laughs) It's probably not super interesting unless you're immersed in the scuba diving world, but it's just a very complex machine. I was going to say, it sounds very complex that you have all the the different tubes and it has the computer and everything. It sounds very complex. Yeah. This is how to deal when shit gets real. Hit us up on all of our social media and emails. And thank you so much for being with us here today, Ashley. Thank you guys. And make sure you pick up a copy of Always Coming Back Home by Ashley Buggy. It is a wonderful, heartfelt read. Or all the other stuff that she mentioned too, because there seems to be a lot of stuff going on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can keep track of me on Instagram too. It's ashley.buggy. I know Rihanna follows me on there. There's always something. Oh, awesome. And Connie. (laughs) I'm always up to something We're traveling a lot or playing pranks on the kids. There's, there's usually, Ooh, good I love it. 